Good morning, I'm Steve. I'm one of the leaders in church life. We want together to be family and to discover Jesus together. So if you don't know Jesus at all or you've been following him for many years, you are welcome with us as a church. A number of years ago, I had a flight to America and I watched this film called Tolkien. And it blew me away emotionally, really, really stirred me positively. But actually, I was slightly disappointed because it didn't talk about the end of his life. And I knew something about that. So, spoiler alert, <laughs> I'm going to tell you a little bit about the end of Tolkien's life. Because I think it really can touch us today. In the late 1930s, Tolkien had been... Um, been writing his Lord of the Rings, that incredible book and film series, and yet he got stuck. Writer's blank block. Um, he just really was struggling with the plot and how to bring all the characters in. He just was, he was just was really struggling with things, partly because he was a perfectionist and everything had to be done exactly right. But to make matters even worse for him, the Second World War broke out. Invasion was a high prior, prior possibility. And Tolkien had been in the First World War and he had been really hurt and struggled by it. It had been a painful experience because he'd lost friends. And so he was deeply fearful. He was, even though he was a civilian, he wasn't sure whether he would last through the Second World War. And so he began to despair about the work of his life, the Lord of the Rings, that he would never complete it. And then he was kind of prompted to write a story about a leaf that a painter called Niggle had painted. And just briefly tell you something of that story. Niggle, the painter, had this picture of this huge picture. And so he created this canvas. He had to have a ladder to put it together. But due to various distractions, he only managed to paint one leaf before he died. And on his deathbed, he was distraught that he had not managed to paint this picture. But then he went to heaven. And as he was walking along, he suddenly realized that beside him was a tree as just as he had imagined. And each leaf was just as he painted that leaf. And surrounding those that tree was fields just as he had imagined it. And just on the horizon was a forest just as he had imagined it. God had given him not just what he'd painted, but what he'd imagined. And this stirred something in Tolkien. He processed his fear as he wrote that story. And he realised that what he did for Jesus, what he did for God, would last forever. And that gave him an incredible hope. And so together with what that story did for him, and his friend C.S. Lewis of Narnia fame, encouraging him and prompting him, he got back to writing and he managed to finish that great work. Hope had done an amazing thing for him and transformed him, enabled him to finish. And we're doing a series on living in hope. Now hope, even if we have hope, it doesn't change all our circumstances. 
it didn't change for the Thessalonians. They were in a difficult situation. Tolkien had a difficult situation and we have had a difficult situation in and amongst this COVID-19 crisis. But as Christians, we have an incredible hope. It's so amazing. You know, not just, you know, we think of hope as an expectation of good. And for Christians, it isn't just an, a hope, an expectation, a wish, a positive thought. It is an absolute certainty of future good based on God and his promises. As Christians, we have, we have something absolutely amazing. But we need to be like Tolkien. We need to process our difficulties in life. We need, and we need to grasp hope if we're going to do what God has in store for us. During this crisis, I have experienced grief and loss. Not bereavement, fortunately. But the loss of not being able to do the things that I'd have wanted to do. Go on holiday, go out with friends, etc. And I'm sure many of you have experienced those negative emotions that have come with that sense of grief and loss at not being able to do things. And so today, as part of our series, we are looking at hope, but we are also looking at grief. And I think we can learn things through this. We, each of us, will have to face this. This is vital for us if we are going to go where God wants us and we are to be the people that God wants us to be. So let's read together from Paul's letter to the Thessalonians, chapter 1, verse, chapter 4, verse 13. A little bit of background, Paul had spoken about Jesus coming again into the world to put the world to rights. And during his visits, during, after his visit, a number of the Christians had fallen asleep or died. And some of the other Christians were worried about where were they, what, what had happened to them? Would Jesus bring them to be with him at the end of the world? So Paul writes, verse 13. Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death, so that you will not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. And that's our key verse we're going to look at today. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. According to the Lord's word, we tell you that we who are alive and who are left until the coming of the Lord will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of an archangel and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Now, brothers and sisters, about times and dates, we do not need to write to you. For you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying peace and safety, destruction will come on them suddenly as a labour pains on a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you, brothers and sisters, are not in darkness, so that this day should not surprise you like a thief. 
You are all children of light and the children of the day. We do not belong to the night or to the darkness. So then, let us not be like others who are asleep, but let us be awake and sober. For those who, are, who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, putting on faith and love as a breastplate, and the hope of salvation as a helmet. Again, a key verse for us this morning. For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. He died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with him and therefore encourage one another and build one another up just as in fact you have been doing. So before we come back to thinking a bit more about grief, we're going to fill out a little bit of detail about the hope of Jesus returning. It seems that some Christians had died and they were concerned about where they had gone and what had happened to them. Verse 13, Paul says, we do not grieve like the rest of mankind because we have hope. You see, in Greek culture, there was largely no belief in the afterlife or if there was, it was what they called shades. It was a kind of dismal um, existence in Hades. It really wasn't very much. And so there was no hope after death really for people. In Jewish thought, in contrast, there was this, this growth of thought about the resurrection, about life after death, a bodily resurrection at the end of all time. But really, Jesus' death and resurrection totally changed the ideas about death. The Jewish concept there was, was one thing about resurrection, but there was a complete change between the Jewish concept and the Christian first century concept of resurrection. And N.T. Wright in his monumental book of something like 800 pages, which I've only read a little bit of, he, um, he, he, he builds this argument that far and away the most likely reason for this change of thought is that Jesus actually did rise from the dead. And as Christians, that's what we believe. That is what our hope is built on. Our hope is that as Jesus has risen from the dead, so too Christians, when we die, that is not the end. It is not the exit. It is the entrance into God's new world that he is giving for Christians. But what does the coming of Jesus look like? What's it going to look like? In verse 16, it talks about the Lord himself will come down from heaven to earth. This is the second coming, Jesus coming again. And I want to suggest that what we have here is metaphorical language rather than details of exactly how Jesus is going to come. For example, the context tells us that he talks about um, coming like a thief in the night. Is Jesus going to be a literal thief? He talks about it being a birth, like a birth of a child. Is Jesus going to be birthed into the world like a child? No. And then the clouds again is something which talks, is a symbol. It's a biblical Old Testament symbol of the immediate presence of God, like at Mount Sinai, like at the dedication of the tabernacle and the temple, like at Jesus' transfiguration where the cloud come down and the Father speaks to Jesus and this is my son whom I love. 
such is the that is the symbolism so N.T. Wright when he talks talk, says that all talk about the future is like signposts in the fog we don't have the details of exactly how it's going to happen but I think in this passage there are two really interesting words that if we can grasp hold of bring a new meaning and depth to what we believe the first one is parousia coming coming of the Lord it has kind of two ideas one is that something that has been hidden is suddenly revealed and disclosed with power and majesty and the second angle of this word parousia was that it became an official term for a visit of a person of high rank like an emperor or a king who came to a province it's that visit thus Jesus coming seems Paul seems to be saying that this is about an unveiling a revealing of power and majesty of the king the king of kings Jesus first word was parousia second word is meet meet the Lord appendesis it's another incredibly technical word that we is lost on us but it was like when a dignitary paid an official visit to a city the action of the leading citizens in going out to meet him and escort him back from the edges of the city into the city itself was called an appendesis and if we realize that in Thessalonica when Paul was being persecuted he was criticized by his by his critics who said they are all defying Caesar's decrees saying that there is another king one called Jesus so we bear that in mind the parousia the coming and the apantesis the meeting it was talking it was building a picture Paul was building a picture of the King Jesus the King of Kings the Lord of Lords not Caesar but the true King God the Creator was coming into his his world and showing us himself fully and bringing everything back into its rightful place and we as Christians we go out to meet him outside of the city and he comes back into the world into the earth to bring his rule and his reign his second coming, where everything will be put right there will no longer be crying or mourning and death and there will be justice and there will be reward those that faithfully serve Jesus will be rewarded it is an incredible prospect a hope indeed but to build the sense that it is metaphorical there's the apocalyptic <laughs> imagery of a voice of an angel the trumpet call of God again not pointing that everything is literal yes Jesus is coming but the detail is not meant to be taken literally of course there has been a popular view about the rapture and that word is in this passage that Christians will be leaving with Jesus leaving the rest of the world behind perhaps for a thousand years and there have been those films where the pilot is taken out of a plane and therefore the plane crashes but I don't think Jesus is talking about that Paul is talking about this at all he is saying he's seeking to bring comfort not create fear 
Of course, there are a number of different Christian views about the end of the world, like the rapture is one example. But these things are not to be held dogmatically at the expense of the unity in the church. But unity in the certain hope of Jesus coming again, that is hope, that brings joy, that brings energy to put everything right. But the Thessalonians were not only worried about the people that died, they were also worried about when would Jesus come and how should they prepare. And Paul's answer is we don't know. Don't worry about that. Many, people, many Christians have got their dates wrong about the coming of Jesus. But what he says is prepare. And someone quipped, they said, don't worry about Jesus coming today because it's already tomorrow in Australia. <laughs> so there is this incredible hope that we have in Jesus. But what about grief? How do we respond to our loss and our grief? Many of us distract ourselves, binge watching Netflix, eating too much, being incredibly busy with work. Or perhaps we might deny our emotions. We give quick answers. We jump into a positivity. It'll be right in a moment. I'm okay. Don't worry about me. And sometimes, in particularly in Christian circles, there is this, why can you be sad? Because Jesus has risen from the dead. You know, rejoice, rejoice. And that's a kind of, some people describe that as a violence of positivity. So as Christians, Paul isn't saying don't grieve. He's saying grieve with hope. We are allowed to grieve. Yes, we are allowed to grieve. You're, it's okay not to be okay. When Paul was involved in the killing of the first martyr, Stephen, it says in Acts 8 that godly men buried Stephen and they mourned deeply for him. And there is a kind of simplistic view of the grief cycle. But I think it, has, it is helpful in some ways, but it's also simplistic. This cycle of denial, anger, bargaining, depression, and then finally acceptance. The problem with it is that very rarely is there this linear process that we just follow through. It's not like, it's not that simple. Instead, it is far more complex and our emotions get mulled around and we might start to be bargaining and then go back to more denial and anger and so on. It's not a linear process. It's all mixed up, a bit like the diagram that hopefully you're going to see on the screen. But hopefully also there is some healing. But sometimes there are two steps forward, one step back. And sometimes we may feel that we've got through and then suddenly it comes in on us again. There is this triggering of something that it becomes overwhelming. And there is suddenly this emotion that we cannot explain. It seems to come upon us. And for some, particularly around bereavement, grief is not fully resolved. People talk of grieving not as a process, but more something that washes over us. You just can't take the class of step one, step two, step three, step four. It's not as simple as that. 
But what happens if we don't grieve? I think it's costly in our lives. First of all, if we don't grieve, we become bitter. Their pain is then transferred to others. We lash out, we become angry, we do all kinds of things. And secondly, if we deny our emotions, our emotions become stunted. We begin not to feel. And we lack empathy for others who are in problems because we don't understand it ourselves. And as a consequence, we don't build relational bridges with one another. And so our relationships are poor. It's critical that we deal with our grief and loss and our negative emotions. But how can we do it? There aren't any easy, perfect answers to these questions. But here are some things that can be helpful. First of all, if we actually face them, that we name them, that we write them down, we consider them. And the second thing is that we need to process them, but not just on our own. People have done studies which says that um, there's a guy that did a study and he thought that those that experience grief and loss with shame would be the people that would not process their grief well and recover from it. He thought that they would be the people, but it's his utter surprise. All the data showed that the people that recover from grief and loss were those that did it relationally, who processed with a counsellor, with friends, with family, not on their own. Name them, process them with others, express them. Journaling has been shown to be an incredibly powerful tool, not just talking about your grief but actually physically writing it down and going through and has been very very powerful the studies have shown that and i personally have found journaling very very healing for me when i have been dealing with negative emotions stress anxiety and anger i know art and poetry has also been proven to be very powerful with people with trauma and I am not surprised that God in his wisdom, as he's written his book, the Bible, that a quarter of the Psalms are about lament and grieving so that we process our things before God because God cares and he loves us. And there is an incredible power in praying through Psalms with God. I remember one particular occasion I was really, really angry. I had lost two people from my team and they had not been replaced and the workload was huge and the pressure was all on me and I was having to drive to Derby at least a couple of times a week. The pressure was great. I was angry because my boss's boss boss was doing nothing. There were people that were being made redundant from another department who were well able to come and do this work but he would not let me interview them or uh, put a job advert out there for them. I was angry. I remember it so clearly that on one Thursday night, coming home angry, I couldn't sleep that night. I had to get up and I came down and I read some Psalms and I was so angry. I tried to give my anger to God, but nothing really happened. I didn't feel any change. Eventually I went back to bed, but God is good. The first phone call I had the next morning was from my boss's boss boss. He'd never rang me before. He never rang me afterwards. 
and I, and he was ringing about some business thing that I talked to him about that but then I was able to calmly say this is not acceptable I cannot continue with this you need to do something about this and God is good and within a couple of months it was all sorted out sometimes of course our grief and loss and situations are not so simply sorted out but praying psalms is very powerful the fourth thing that we need to do is we somehow need to learn to surrender and let go of these things in our lives and trust God, fall back into his love. The reality is that when we die, we are not going to be able to take these things with us, you know, our car, our job, our career, our house or whatever it is. We will not take these things. At some point we will have to let go of our health. And so grief can be an opportunity for us to grow as Christians. What will go forward into the eternity is our character. Who have we become? Have we become someone who knows and experiences the incredible love of God? And it's so filling us that it is pouring out to other people. That is what Jesus is after in our lives. So this is an opportunity for us not to be so attached to the things of the world, but to experience something of him. We need to let go and surrender. And the fifth thing is we need to receive our new beginnings because God is love every, is new every day. And he longs to pour grace and mercy into our, where we are now. We need to let go of our plan A that has gone wrong, that, we can, that is irrevocably not there anymore. We need to let go. There's nothing we can do about it. But what we can do is make it a jolly good job of plan b we can do that to our best and really and maybe it's a plan c d e or f or whatever it is for you but make the very best of where we are having processed through some of these things and did you notice that paul says for us to put on the helmet the hope of salvation that's something we need to learn to do we need to protect our minds with a helmet and that helmet is the hope of salvation that God is faithful that he is good and that he will provide for us and we will be with him in the next life he is good so how does this work out for you and I practically today what can we do the first thing I want to say is it's it's OK not to be OK. And we need to process with others our issues and problems. Honesty is far better than silence. We need to talk. Journaling can be very, very powerful. Praying through the Psalms, I really would encourage you if you're feeling negative or even positive. And then we need to put on that helmet of salvation. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. There's transformation that is colossal as we really begin to think like God thinks in our lives. And wouldn't it be amazing if we really grasped hold of the hope that we have in Jesus? 
that Jesus has died and risen again. He is coming back, folks. He is coming back and he's going to put that world absolutely right. We have an absolute assurance of expectation of coming good because of the person of our God and his promises. In the meanwhile, he calls you and I, little old me and you, to be carriers of hope. Just like Tolkien, we are called to process our pain, grasp hold of his hope, and then we can achieve the work of our lives. We can do things that really matter in this life and in the life to come, that God will take care of. Each of us can paint leaves. Each of us could do a little thing for Jesus, and that will have incredible value.